Hello, Jonathan. A blessed epiphany to you. And to you, Seth. Can you believe it's 2023? No, because we're recording this in 2022. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to ruin the magic, everybody, but it's <laughs> it's kind of surprising. I do remember in twenty at the end of 2020, we were... It was still in the days of, you know, live streaming and pre-recording services, and we were doing some pre-recording for the first service of 2021, and when we said that with the group of people that were recording, we all just had this, like, huge sigh of relief, like, oh my gosh, 2020 is over. (laughs) You could feel it in the room. And, you know, obviously 2021 turned out to be pretty terrible too, but... (laughs) It's just, I just still remember that so clearly. And so maybe we can embody some of that same energy and hope for for the coming year. Yes, I'm all for that. I'm also all about asking you this question. Here we go. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to walk 50 miles or drive 2,000 miles? Maybe the miles was implied there. Yeah, I got it. But I appreciate the clarity. It's hard for me not to sing the Proclaimers song right now, admittedly. Which I feel like is the topic that has come up most in these questions. (laughs) But presuming there was no limitation on my timing, I think I'd go with walking 50 miles. I mean, driving can be enjoyable, over long distances, but the high risk of traffic and boredom and (laughs) running out of good podcasts like this one to listen to just feels like that would be a more challenging experience. You know, if I could do five or ten miles a day for, you know, however many days it ends up taking (laughs) between five and ten, uh, (laughs) I would... I think I would opt for that. If I had to just like start walking and couldn't stop for 50 miles, that might be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I was thinking you could stop because I also don't know if you could, like, if you could drive for 2,000 miles straight. I mean, safely. <laughs> right, fair. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think there's a time limit on, e- on either excursion. I'm going with you too. I think I would walk. Think like you can see so much more, like be in touch with your surroundings in a way that you're not when you're like isolated in the car on the highway. You know, going going sixty or faster, like everything's just like flying past. But like, there's something about walking, like taking it slow, that's that's appealing. Yeah. So we agreed on this one. Disagreed last what week, a, but we're back. What a way to start off the new year. <laughs> back to <In> agreement. agreement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jonathan, would you read our passage from Matthew this morning? I would be glad to. This is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 from the NIV. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I, I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Huh. It's less like a Hallmark Christmas movie and more like a crime drama of some kind. <laughs> yeah, it's it's different than even our Christmas reading. That's like, it's still calming. The shepherds hear about this little baby Jesus. This is like they're warned not to go back to Herod. There's like a climax to the story, which isn't true of Hallmark movies, I should say. I don't really, I don't think. Well, while you were reading, what jumped out at you? I think in my memory in this story, when Herod hears from the Magi, he like instantly provides this response. I've never really noticed that he, that he goes into full consultation mode and you know, summons together all the priests and teachers of the law. And I'm just wondering what the Magi are doing during this time. <laughs> is he just like, hold that thought. And he goes and gets on a Zoom call for a few minutes with everybody. And he's like, wait a minute. Where was he going to be born? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what, that's what stands out to me, is that Herod was so obsessed with being considered the king of the Jews himself and yet still relied on others to know this kind of critical information. <laughs> so there's just that, that contrast, I think, is what stood out to me the most. What always interests me about that little tidbit, too, is that I think you know, often a, an uncritical reading of the Gospels can cast the chief priests and the teachers of the law in, like a, in a bad light. Right. But they know the answer to Herod's question. Like, they, you know, they're like, these are knowledgeable, you know, faithful people. Like, he asked them, and they're like, oh, we, like, we know this, because we've been, we've been studying and learning about it. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, it, it's a helpful, it can be a helpful corrective to the ways that they have been shunned. And, but I really like your point about the way he's, he's so terrified that his that his position is like is under attack by by a baby right like by a child at least is there anything else that jumped out at you the last verse is very important but it's it's 
written kind of as a throwaway line. It's just like, oh, they had a dream not to go back to Herod. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I feel like if this was part of the the tradition of more exploratory reflections on scripture, that there could be a lot of mystical, exciting explorations of that. But it's just kind of... And, they, you know, obviously they were warned in a dream... They, they figured out what was going on because of that. So they went another way. <laughs> yeah. It is. Like, like what crucial information that's mediated via a dream that we hear nothing else about? Like, what was that right. dream like, you know? Well, I want to talk more about the way Herod is just, like, obsessed with maintaining power. Because I think that that's true not just of Christian nationalists, but maybe like of politics in general, and certainly true of Christian nationalists. Uh, But I want to talk about like whether this story tells us something different about the way that we like think about power and relinquish power and who, who actually has power, who should have power, all those different types of questions. So my question for you, as a politically astute person, is like, why... That's a big assumption. (laughs) It is. But go ahead. It is. (laughs) It's like, why do you think politicians are so obsessed with maintaining power? Like, why... You know, why, I guess another way to think of it is like, why don't we have term, term limits? Why can you just keep running and running and running? Mm. Why wouldn't you give it up at some point? I wanted to hear your perspective about why that is. I don't really know, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll probably formulate an answer as I'm speaking about it in typical Jonathan fashion. But, I mean, the way that it's framed in terms of the resistance to term limits, is like it's good to have people with experience in some measure of, you know, authority, right? That You know, it's it's good to have people who have been at it a while who know how things are done. That's how it's framed, at least. I don't know that I agree with it, but that's the narrative that's out there. Maybe this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but if you have a taste of power, why wouldn't you want more of it, right? Mm. If you have the ability to affect change, why wouldn't you want to affect more change? Even from a positive, positive perspective, if you've if you've had a really positive experience with that, or if you've had an experience that has left a significant impression on you, why would you turn another direction? I don't know that it's right, but it feels kind of natural for that to happen, right? we are we are people who well even let's let's get away from the universal i am a person who values control like i say that i value change but i like to either know what change is coming when or be the one orchestrating the change myself you know <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah. and so it it feels like there is some measure in my own self of a desire for control and in you know our shared identity as 
straight white cis men, there are more and more settings where we enter assuming that we have some measure of control and power too. We assume that we'll be taken seriously in most scenarios that we enter because that has happened for our people, so to speak, for a long time. And the way that we've been socialized and we then lean into that power because the way our world has been ordered now, especially through the era of colonialism and now post-colonialism, it is who holds the power that says how things will go. It's who holds the power that is able to fend off outside influences. It, it becomes this draw that may be initially approached with good intentions, but often it becomes the power itself that wrestles us back into those scenarios. And so, again, back into the political sphere, it feels like running for re-election when there's no limitation feels like the right, the right move because you spent all this time learning, finding your voice in a scenario. Are you just going to give it up that readily? Hmm. Are you going to be forgotten as a one-term president or one-term representative? It just feels like there's there's some draw to keep coming back over and over. And for many, at some point, the draw of the power itself often outweighs the draw of the reasons for pursuing it in the first place. Hmm. I think that was an insightful answer that you talked your way into. <laughs> was, I'm talking my way around it, it felt like, but thank you. No, I think your point that the power itself becomes the draw like, is is well taken. And I also thought you had a you had a little section about the way that like you you want to be remembered. You don't want to be just the one term person. Like you want to have some some kind of lasting impact. I wonder if I don't see some of that in Herod. I don't know, like part of the reason he wants to stay king is like he wants to be remembered, not overshadowed by this, by this new king. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because we've been thinking very specifically about Christian nationalism, which I think does does this like gets into power and wants power and wants to maintain power at basically any and all costs but the allure to power it isn't just for christian nationalists i guess Mm. to me the difference might be you know to what lengths you will go to maintain it that might that might be the difference for me that's the drive behind so much of the the moral majority and these organizing groups that identify Christian faith or their interpretation of it as the the guiding light, so to speak, for their political pursuits. But at the core of it, you know, the emergence of the pro-life movement and things like the moral majority coincide very strongly 
with the end of segregation. These predominantly white groups see themselves losing footholds of power, and they begin to explore what are the other causes that we can now run on or advocate for that can unite a strong enough voting block mm, yeah. to help us secure that power once again. And some may very earnestly argue that identifying abortion and reproductive health care as that new battleground, they may earnestly argue that that's a point of faith or a point of morality that feels very important to them. But the reality is that the widespread reactions to Roe versus Wade when it was initially ruled on in 1973 prompted the questions of, oh, this is an outlet for us to pursue power. Like the reality of it for people after that is, is a totally different conversation from the origins of why leaders in those spaces aligning with the ideologies of the religious right and honestly, in some language that has provided the modern day foundation for our understanding of Christian nationalism, they looked at that opportunity as an opportunity to pursue and hold power, not as an opportunity to advance what they perceived to be as a moral right. Hmm. And so it's, it's astounding to see how the... I would say the desperate pursuit of maintaining power is central to the, our understanding of Christian nationalism today, too, as you were suggesting, that it's not just about ensuring that your values are able to be expressed. It's about turning your values into societal and cultural norms at the expense of others' values and experiences and faiths. And there's so much power behind that power that we've seen every week during this series is just absent from the birth stories of Christ. Yeah. That's the, the stark contrast between Herod and this Jesus who's born in Judah in Bethlehem, this little backwater town. It's like all the, all the locus of power is with Herod. He'll do he'll do seemingly anything to keep it. And what whatever he will do is you know is so terrible that the Magi are warned in a dream not even to tell him where this Jesus is, so he can't enact whatever his his plan is yeah we get a glimpse of that terror in the rest of this chapter too yep exactly the circumstances that prompted the holy family to be refugees as we heard in our prayer and poem from last week are a direct result of herod's fear of losing power the execution of all the baby boys that were born in that range of time. A point of the story that we often conveniently leave out <laughs> this time of year. Absolutely. And 
leave out of our Christmas pageant. Yes. And admittedly, like, probably, I don't think that I'm advocating yeah. for, for infanticide to be included in our Christmas pageant. Same. Uh, but we have to recognize that this is a story that is rooted in the realities of the world. It's not something that is totally sterilized and totally absent and totally removed from even the political realities of the Roman Empire at the time. Herod wasn't even king. Like he was yeah. he was given authority as kind of the puppet over this region. And that's I think that's I think where the dangers of power come into play is not necessarily the people who are at the very top. That's hmm. you know that's problematic and that that happens, but it's the people who hold minimal amounts of power as if they are at the very top. It's the hmm. the mid-level manager who operates like a dictator that actually becomes the spaces where the most harm can be done to the people who are the most vulnerable. Often because the people who are at the very top don't have much reason or uh, motivation to interact with folks in those spaces. But the folks who have hmm. a little bit of power, who turn it into something much more than that, they're the ones who can actually do a lot of harm by holding on to the power. Hmm. I think that's such a key point. The way there's there's this middle group of people who have some power, not the most power, but some power, who will do anything to exploit it, and who are kind of allowed to do so. But it's those people who are just who are just causing like all all this suffering and harm. And I wonder if that isn't also true of Christian nationalism. Like it lets kind of those people in that middle group run wild. Does nothing to to curtail them, to challenge them. Just lets it lets their their power hurt people who are already hurting, people who are just different than them. Mm. And it blesses the fact that there's no no correction to be made. Just the power can run wild. Over the course of this series, we came into this with the idea that maybe Advent and Christmas could speak against Christian nationalism in some way. But what I know, at least I've come to realize and identify with, is that the power-hungry understanding of Christian nationalism is not just in conflict with, it feels antithetical to the Jesus that we encounter in these passages around the stories of Jesus' birth. The grasping for power feels much more like Herod operating out of fear of losing control than it does about Jesus and his family who were forced to flee for their lives. I don't know. We came into this. I'm very confident in saying this. We came into this anti-Christian nationalism. I'm coming out of this even more strongly identifying Christian nationalism as just opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but that, that's true for me too. Like I, I saw it just like you were saying in conflict. And now to say they're in conflict doesn't go far enough for me well Seth will you will you pray for us 
that we can carry this message, this <laughs> this message of an antithetical gospel in the best way. Carry that forward. I'll be honored to. Lowly Lord, you eschew all forms of political power. You dine with those who have power levied against them and who have no real power of their own. Help us to push back against the powerful who will use everything in their grasp to assert their will over others and to assert that their will is actually yours. Help us instead to side with the marginalized, to sit with them and eat with them, to be with them, to recognize that all the power in the world that is worth having manifests for the lowly and manifests through your gracious love. We pray this through the one who was born lowly and powerless in a manger, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this first series back and I guess, the second generation of No Experts Allowed. We hope that you've had a wonderful Advent and Christmas season, and we're looking forward to being back in your podcast feeds for Lent, which starts late February of this year, 2023. But until then, Seth, thanks for walking us through that story. Thanks for helping me tell it. Well, I want to talk more about the way Harold, not Harold, Harold. <laughs> <laughs>